This is the Reformed Libertarians Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute with Carrie Baldwin and Gregory Baus. We explore free society from a Reformed perspective. You can find us at reformedlibertarians.com. We talk about culture, society, politics, economics, theology, philosophy, worldview, and more, helping those interested in liberty and human flourishing to think about them based in the Reformed faith. This is episode four. I'm Carrie Baldwin here with Gregory Baus. Today, we're introducing you to the Reformed Libertarianism Statement, wherein we've laid out the key principles of a Reformed view of libertarianism and where we ground that in scripture. So we're actually going to start with the first section of the statement, which is going to be linked in the show notes. There's four sections in total. The first three are written. The fourth is forthcoming. But the first section is what is culture? And I'm going to read our first paragraph that we have here on human production. 1A, human production. Culture is the human activity of having dominion over the earth, being fruitful, filling, ruling, and subduing the world, cultivating, and keeping it. Culture is also the result of that labor, the secondary environment of human production within the natural environment. Being made in God's image, designed to exercise dominion, human beings, even fallen in sin, cannot help but act purposefully, labor, and cultivate the creation, including ourselves. So let's start out and just define culture really quick. What what do we mean by culture? So there's an activity involved, and then the results of that activity are both included in this idea. And the activity, as specified in what's called the cultural mandate, sometimes the creation mandate, Genesis 1, 26-28, and 2.15, it's also repeated after the flood in Genesis 9, The activity is having dominion over the earth, being fruitful, filling, ruling, and subduing the world, cultivating and keeping it, that is, working and guarding it. And the results of that activity are a secondary environment of human production within the natural environment. That's why I say it's secondary. Mm -hmm. So the results of that dominion, fruitfulness, filling, ruling, subduing, cultivating, and keeping is that humans are producing that. So it's an environment of human production within the natural environment. It's whatever basically is man-made. And that includes intangible things. So Mm. if I make, let's say, an idea or I put my idea into practice in some way, I might not be able to tangibly touch it as an object. That's still a man-made thing. Mm -hmm. Now, it also involves layers of various kinds of activities. So some of those intangible things with tangible things all together, we elaborate on what we mean by those various kinds of things that culture is more in the next section. Okay. So culture is both the activity that we do, our actual producing of of things and ideas, and then the results that come from that. That's right. Okay. And then we also mentioned that it's rooted in humans as, as God's image. Did you want to say any more about that? Well, those next sections highlight that culture is based in religion. It is inherently and fundamentally religious because it comes out of our being in the image of God. It also, that image also has two different kinds of dimensions. One is a structural, official dimension that is a God-given normed office or calling to exercise dominion. And then a, what we might call a directional normative dimension that is a matter of conforming or not, or conforming more or less to God-given norms. So those are the two dimensions of the image. 
And we also address what happens after the fall, that the way in which human beings remain the image of God is in terms of the structure or office that remains their calling by God to exercise dominion as his image. And while we ourselves and our actions are misdirected in our sinful nature, so that that second dimension of the image of the conformity to God's calling, that is directed away in sin. But through Christ, through redemption, believers are redirected or renewed in that dimension of the image. We'll get into more details as we go along. We're going to do future episodes that go through each of these sections and explain these in greater detail. If you want to jump ahead and look at that, you can always jump into the Reformed Anarchism Statement. Like I said, it's linked in the show notes. Now, there are myriads of ways that Christians view culture, many of which run contrary to one another. So why is it important to understand what culture is and also what it is not? The reason culture is something that's important for, I would say, everyone, but especially Christians to understand is because culture itself is important. In a way, the most important thing we do is the specific or narrow sense of worshiping God, because God is the most important thing, more important than anything else. Mm -hmm. But nearly everything else we do is cultural activity. And cultural activity is important because it is the other main way we glorify and love God and the main way we love our neighbor in service to God. Until the resurrection and glorification, doing culture is not only a life-encompassing mandate from God, but it's also built in to our very natures. God-given laws and norms are directly related to the way reality and we ourselves have been created and exist. And while cultural activity is not more important than people themselves, so we might say culture is made for man, not man for culture, so to speak, to take a phrase from Jesus about the Sabbath. Nevertheless, on this side of the new heavens and new earth, humans are made to do cultural activity. And I suppose part of that, we could say understanding what culture is and isn't is important because understanding a thing is part of cultural activity itself. Mm -hmm. And understanding a thing helps us, particularly understanding cultural activity, helps us to do that activity better. Right. So we're offering a specifically reformed view of culture and why we think it's the most biblical. So why don't you go ahead and explain in more detail what, what is a reformed view of culture? Well, one important part of a reformed view of culture not yet mentioned in the statement, though we intend to address it in the forthcoming fourth section, is the so-called common curse. Subsection 1E mentions common grace, and that will be discussed more later. But in brief, common grace is that God, after the fall, postpones the final judgment and preserves the created order. However, after the fall, there was also a temporal curse on human life. This was the curse of pains and temporal death in Genesis 3, 16 through 19. In Romans 8, 20 through 21, this curse is called subjection to futility or vanity and bondage or slavery to decay or corruption. Not only does the labor of childbirth now involve excruciating pains, but so does all our labor for survival. Life is full of human sin and misery. The natural creation, and so human culture with it, has also been cursed with thorns and weeds, both literal and figurative. Now plans fail, our efforts are frustrated and wasted, we get sick and injured and weak and old, and we die. We are forgotten, and all the good we were trying to accomplish 
is eventually ruined and disappears. All this is true for believers and unbelievers alike, as Ecclesiastes teaches. Before the fall, however, cultural labor was different in its function and purpose. Had Adam passed the covenant of works probationary test, Genesis 2, 15 through 17, at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, humanity's cultural activity would have been without pain and entirely successful. Imagine this, a series of uninterrupted, escalating discoveries and triumphs. Wow. And done as part of a unique theocratic institution. Not possible now since the fall. Humanity would have actually accomplished and completed the cultural mandate as it was originally given before the fall and achieved full dominion over the world. But after the fall, the institutional church was established as the new objectively holy community the uniquely set-apart institutional form of God's kingdom by the covenant of grace in Genesis 3.15. And believers' cultural activity would no longer expand a realm to be glorified nor contribute to obtaining the future glorified heavens and earth. Only Christ's own work would do that as Hebrews 2, 5-18 teaches. Nevertheless, by their redemption in Christ, believers are enabled, as we might say, to subjectively sanctify their cultural activity, doing it in a distinctly Christian way to God's glory. So a couple of things come out. The first is, what do you mean by subjectively sanctified? Because I think that could be easily confused. The context of subjective sanctification of cultural activity is one's regeneration. So we can't talk about the subjective sanctification of cultural activity apart from that in any way. There's no subjective sanctification for unbelievers. For the unregenerate. Mm-hmm. That's the first thing to say about what it means. It's something that flows out of and is made possible by being united to Christ in faith, having had one's heart renewed, being turned from idols unto God mm-hmm. through the work of Christ. It's the application of redemption, the effectual call. So that's the first thing to say about it. It also involves our, or Christians, doing something for a purpose with that end or goal or aim in mind, the intention of what they're doing is ultimately to bring glory to God, right? Mm -hmm. So the Westminster Catechisms talk about good works, and they are works that come from a regenerate heart of faith that are done in ways in which the Word requires, you could say, including in loving service and witness to our neighbor, and they're also done unto that ultimate purpose Mm -hmm. of God's glory. So if we say from a regenerate heart of faith, according to the ways in which the word requires and with the ultimate purpose of God's glory, in addition to those things, right? So we might, we might say those things concern scripturally specified morality. Right. The subjective sanctification of cultural activity involves those things and increasing conformity to whatever other abiding norms God has established for human action generally and for cultural activity. So to say what those are might take some time. Right. But for example, the scripture doesn't specify what the law of non-contradiction is, right? Right. There's no logical imperative given in scripture, thou shalt not contradict thyself (laughs) mentally, Right. right? And if it did, it wouldn't be a moral imperative. It's simply a logical imperative. Hmm revealed in creation. Right. That's natural revelation or general or creational revelation. Mm -hmm. When we think about 
the world that God has made. And we encounter the impossibility of things being at the same time in the same sense, both something and not that something, right? right? That's how we encounter the world God has made. And that tells us that we shouldn't think of things in that way Mm -hmm. as being contradictory. That's a revelation about the nature of the world by the way God has made the world from God himself. Mm -hmm. So scripture does not indicate, indicate those things, but those are nonetheless, that's an example nonetheless of an abiding norm that God has established for human action generally and for cultural activity. So just as one example. Now, the implications of that are manifold and various, and there are others. And so sanctifying subjectively, sanctifying our cultural activity means understanding those things and putting them into practice according to what we are capable of understanding by virtue of our having been united to Christ in our regeneration. Many Christians haven't thought about cultural activity before the fall, right? And they often think about that phrase, be fruitful and multiply, as only being about making babies, having, having families. But we're saying that this phrase has a more expansive meaning, correct? Yeah, I think, I think one of the reasons it's understandable not to have given much thought to cultural activity before the fall is we don't know how long Adam and Eve were in the garden doing things before mm-hmm. the probationary test of the tree, right? Doesn't, doesn't specify how much time is there. So at least as the text is concerned, in Genesis, not a lot transpires during that time before Adam ruins it. So it's understandable. It's more of a hypothetical, Mm -hmm. right? We have to think about, oh, what could have happened had Adam passed the test. That's the intended context for what would have been is cultural activity. And yes, like the thorns and thistles or weeds, the elements of the cultural mandate in fruitfulness, for example, This has a literal meaning, of course, in procreation, but it also has a figurative meaning in not just literal creating more people, Mm. but kind of an analogy of that and an analogy of, say, planting more trees that produce fruit. And then you take the fruit from those trees and plant more trees. So that, that, that sort of language as an elaboration on what is meant by subduing the earth having dominion, filling it, that kind of fruitfulness in that way is not just in a strict literal sense, but has an expanded meaning for creative and productive activity. Right. The sorts of things that we all know human beings can do, that create creativity and productivity in those things, yet to be discovered for Adam and Eve at the moment, at the, t- at the time that they were told, they didn't yet know or they hadn't yet done those things, but that would be part of their fruitfulness, would have been. Right. So all the technological discoveries and so forth, that's, that's included. Yeah, all, the, all yeah. the good things that humans can produce. So then that other thing that stood out to me was that you said the curse of Genesis 3, 16 through 19 is the curse of pains and temporal death. So this is then repeated in Romans 8, 20 through 21, the subjection to futility and vanity, bondage or slavery to decay and corruption. So the curse is on the cultural activity, is that? Well, it is a curse on human beings, but... It's important to keep in mind that this is not the final judgment curse. This is not the curse that was threatened by God should they eat of the forbidden fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That curse is the eschatological curse. That curse was eternal damnation. That's the death that was threatened. This curse is a curse on the world. Romans makes clear that the creation has been subjected to futility. And in that, it includes our life in the world. 
mm-hmm. and our use of creation. And so our cultural activity. Of course, temporal death is obviously a curse on us. Pain is actually right. something we feel. So I think they, they are together. Okay, so now there are any number of principled views about culture that manifest in various worldviews, I suppose you could say. We're not going to get into those, but you've identified two very common erroneous views. What, what are those? Yes, yeah, so there are several, of course, as you might expect, historical misconceptions of the relation between believers' cultural activity to their Christian faith or of cultural activity to religion or religious belief generally. And one of the most prominent errors is what might be called a scholastic view. Now, there are various particular schools of thought that might be included within a general scholastic perspective, but the basic idea is that so-called natural truths are understood by reason apart from faith. That's the claim. Uh, Available to both unregenerate and regenerate, or believers and unbelievers. And that specially revealed supernatural truths, for example, in Scripture about God and the human soul, and so on, are understood by faith given by saving grace available only to the regenerate. Uh, In this view, matters pertaining to cultural activity may be conceived as natural truths or truths pertaining to nature, and so non-religious or religiously neutral. That is, one's cultural activity or one's understanding of culture does not differ in relation to one's religious beliefs. So this is like secularism, right? (laughs) In certain conceptions, in certain scholastic understandings, it is a sort of secularism. And some have said this had some kind of inevitable preparatory kind of Mm. set up the conditions for secularism to come about. However, a different view, what may be called neo-Calvinism, a view that we support and has influenced a number of points in the statement, rejects the idea of there being some non-religious area of life that any area of life is or could be religiously neutral is a myth. Not only does everyone invariably either believe in the one living and true God revealed in Christ through scripture or in something else as a self-existent reality, that is an idol, Mm -hmm. but also being made in God's image. All our beliefs and actions are ultimately in response to God, to our relation with him. In every area of their lives, in every action, humans are accountable to God and dependent on him. And this includes human reasoning. There's no use of human reason, no rationality that even concerning natural things or nature that can be apart from at least implicit and perhaps unconscious assumptions about an ultimate frame of meaning and what is self-existent. And those are necessarily religious assumptions. So the idea of reason or rationality apart from religious belief, that is a myth. Right. Now, some who take a scholastic view, given their assumptions, simply cannot imagine what a distinctly Christian view of cultural activity might involve, even if you explain it to them. It's very hard for them to grasp this idea. They may admit that believers can and should do their cultural activity with the purpose of glorifying God and keeping with Christian morality, but otherwise they deny that knowing God in Christ by regeneration can possibly have a distinctive influence on our understanding of what cultural activity means or how we should do it. Now, the influence that it can have is not easily summed up, but we outline in our statements on Reformed Anarchism at least part of what we take that influence to be. So let me ask you this, because there's a term that you may be familiar with, cultural Christianity, right? And I think both 
liberals and conservatives have their own sort of brand of, of social Christianity or cultural norms, I guess you would say, that allude to Christian morals of some kind. How is that different from what we're talking about when we say that culture can't be secular or religiously neutral? Well, whatever those are, whatever sort of cultural assumptions or attitudes or particular manifestation of those things in some sort of organized form or the paraphernalia right. <laughs> that go along with it, the outward behaviors and objects, mm-hmm. all those things that might characterize a particular culture, those can simply be in more or less conformity to the God-given norms for any of those things. So say, for example, the way individuals relate to a group or conceive of their relation to groups or say within a group, how superiors and inferiors or something like that might relate to each other or how men and women generally interact, things along those lines. Mm -hmm. You might say, oh, well, this is a conservative culture or this is a progressive or liberal culture or something like that. But in in either case, they may be equally unconforming to God's standard or relatively conforming to God's standard. And so I would say, you know, however you pinpoint the differences between one or the other, what we're saying is that those things have a direct relation to the ultimate context that gives meaning. And in terms of religious understanding in relation to God, those things are, they, can, they cannot help but be related to that ultimate frame of meaning. Okay, so what's this? There's another view, another erroneous view that's that's fairly common, known as theonomy. Do you want to talk about that? I'd say it's uh, less prominent historically, but probably with more recent outspoken supporters, theonomy, or there are several versions that might be called semi-theonomic. The basic idea is that so-called biblical law or the law of God, by which they actually mean some of the laws of the old Mosaic covenant. The idea is that these are, in some sense, always binding on all humans, including believers and unbelievers, during the new covenant era today. And while a theonomic view agrees that there is no religiously neutral area of life, neo-Calvinism and a proper reformed view generally, affirming that there is an abiding moral will of God, that's pre-Mosaic even, Our view understands the old covenant as such to be obsolete, as Hebrews 8 says. And our view seeks to interpret the old covenant law as the writers of the New Testament do, as fulfilled by Christ in application to the church. The old Mosaic covenant as such is not a model for believers' cultural activity in the new covenant era because old covenant Israel was a unique, typologically or symbolically theocratic and temporary arrangement in the specific territory of Canaan, which has been brought to an end by Christ's historical accomplishment of redemption in his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. Having that perspective, we don't buy into theonomic or semi-theonomic view. The view of neo-Calvinism is that in addition to scripturally revealed morality, a distinctively Christian view of cultural activity is a matter of looking through the lenses, so to speak, or the perspective of the teaching of scripture, looking through that to examine created reality and to discern on the basis of this general or natural or creational revelation, the various God-given normative principles for cultural life and that in terms of a non-theocratic covenant context. So there's a number of elements 
that might make that sound complicated in terms of the assumptions involved, what theonomy is assuming with scholasticism, you basically have their assumptions about these two distinct kinds of realms or information, natural and supernatural, one received through reason apart from faith, one received by faith. That might seem simple. In the theonomic misconception, it's a misconception of the covenantal context. Right. And then failing to see how the distinctively Christian view of culture is a matter of not special revelation so much as special revelation or the teaching of scripture providing the perspective by which we look at created reality. Right. At general or natural creational revelation. Right. And the various God-given normative principles for cultural life that God reveals there. So a religious perspective right? A religious belief is providing the lens through which we observe and interpret general revelation or what's what's happening in the created order. And so one reason why we don't hold to the scholastic view that you can have reason apart from faith is because even non-Christians have essentially a religious lens through which they interpret the created order. That's true. That's certainly true. Right. So hopefully not to oversimplify, mm-hmm. but some of a scholastic view, while they're looking at created reality, they're thinking that they're doing so in a religiously neutral way. Mm. Perhaps the theonomic or one of the theonomic errors is failing to see the importance of looking at general revelation, looking only at scripture and not through the perspective of scriptural teaching at general revelation. So you've also brought up neo-Calvinism, but doesn't neo-Calvinism hold to something called transformationalism and isn't that unbiblical? It depends on what one means by transformationalist or transformationalism. You know, unless one took the profoundly unrealistic and incoherent view that things as they are, are the best they could be, and that no matter how things change, things were always the best they could be, or unless one took an equally unrealistic and incoherent view that no actions could ever have real effects and that things would be as they are regardless what anyone ever does. All right, unless you took either of those unrealistic and incoherent views, then one has to admit that things can be changed by our actions for better or worse, and we should act with the aim of improving things in such a way to make things better. So that's just to say that nearly everyone is a transformationalist in those very general terms. Mm. So when people are discussing this word, you might want to ask what they mean, <laughs> because if it comes down to it, we believe that we can affect things for better or worse, and we should try to affect things for better. Right. In any case, as Reformed Christians, we know Romans 12 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that you may discern what is the will of God, the good and acceptable and perfect. That's verse one and two, mm-hmm. I remember, yep. of Romans 12. So having been inwardly transformed in regeneration by God's mercy, that fact involves an appeal to our reckoning ourselves in Christ. And through such faith, however small, by his Holy Spirit, living out that transformation according to God's will in all things. This not only involves morals in a strict sense, But out of that centrally religious renewed relation to God, it involves our whole selves and lives in every area turned back to God from idols. Right. So even 
in a believer's cultural activity, one can and should do it unto God, one might say, subjectively sanctified as an offering service to Christ. Colossians 3, 23 to 24 says that. Mm -hmm. You serve the Lord Christ. And so not in conformity to deceitfully plausible sounding philosophies about the nature of being or knowledge or value or anything else if it is not according to Christ. Colossians 2, 3 and 4 and 8 say that. But rather in a transformed way, doing our cultural activity in a transformed way according to an understanding that not only by, through, and for Christ were all things created, but also that only in him all things hold together. And that's Colossians 1, 15 through 20. Now, what concrete differences in any particular cultural activity this might involve for a believer is for them to discern. And as we continue discussing the statement on Reformed anarchism, we'll see further examples of some differences. I've heard Christians, even those who hold to Reformed theology, talk about presenting your, your bodies as a living sacrifice and the things that we do in the, you know, quote unquote, Christian life, right? And they acknowledge that we're supposed to be doing things, that we're supposed to be living in the world, but not of the world. But then they turn around and discuss cultural activity as though it were meaningless, which I think is the poor translation of the word hevel from Ecclesiastes, right? So, and I think this has a tendency to pop up maybe more in the scholastic view where you have this idea of a, of a secular world, but, you know, it's this idea that your activity, your work, your vocation is ultimately meaningless. But in my mind, that sort of renders passages in scripture like Romans 12 to be sort of an empty platitude. So we're arguing that even though our cultural activity isn't producing the eschatological or consummate glorified kingdom, right, of the new heavens and earth, that our faithful work in the world still is is meaningful or or impacts or can impact everyday life. It's not it's not meaningless. Yeah, I think it it's a matter of how or, you know, to borrow a popular phrase among the theonomists, by what standard (laughs) you are judging, you're measuring, Mm -hmm. what is it that you mean by meaningful? Mm -hmm. So there is a very real sense in which the futility that Romans 8 is talking about, the book of Ecclesiastes is pointing us to, of that futility. Look, if you're trying to accomplish what God has actually designed you for initially, before the fall, Mm -hmm. to achieve the glorified consummate kingdom of God, you've already failed. Right. You've already failed before you've begun. Yeah. (laughs) You can't do it anymore. Right. It's not possible, okay? That's real for the Christian. That, in a way, does not change. But by another measure, right, by the measure of that ultimate fulfillment of what it means to be a human being, what it means to be in union with God, that has has been fulfilled in Christ. Mm Mm-hmm. And so now, thinking about 1 Corinthians 15 at the end, after a discussion of the resurrection, he says, your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Right. It's, it's not vanity any longer. Yeah. So in that sense, because Christ accomplishes our redemption and he's the one who brings us into the cosmic kingdom of God, new heavens and new earth, he secured that. That now our lives in him, though the you know, relative temporal impact that they may have is none mm-hmm. <laughs> or unseen or whatever. Uh, the labor that we do in the Lord, the cultural activities that we sanctify unto him in service to him, that's why it has value. Mm-hmm. 
because it's done in him in seeking to recognize his reign over our lives. And so it may not change anything in the larger scheme mm-hmm. in terms of, we talked about at the beginning, in terms of the term transformational, you say, making things better. You can say, well, what did it end up making better? Well, let's say it didn't make anything better. But that, that wasn't the point. Right. The point was doing it in the Lord. That's what Paul urges us to do. And we can have hope about that. Yeah. Well, what we do might have made something better, but we don't necessarily see it, right? Well, and, the, and then the long-term scheme, by what measure are we judging what is better? And so what is better is our doing things in the Lord, seeking to conform subjectively our own cultural practice to understanding what God has revealed, doing it in his service. Right. And it's ultimately God who's working all things together. We're just living by faith. We're, we're doing things in the Lord, but God's working out all of that, that stuff, the, whatever the better is, right? That's absolutely right. Do you have any other final thoughts before we, before we wrap up? A pastor, Presbyterian pastor by the name of Nate Sanders and I went through the statement together and gave what we would hope was a very brief introduction to some of the ideas involved in the statement. And so listeners could take a look at that. And hopefully the conversation, this conversation and ones to come between you and I, Carrie, will uh, elaborate and go into more depth than Pastor Nate and I. Thanks for listening to the Reformed Libertarians podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute with Carrie Baldwin and Gregory Baus. See the website for each episode's show notes and sign up for our email list. Don't forget to rate and review Reformed Libertarians podcast on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcatcher. Find our email and social media on our contact page at reformedlibertarians.com.